How can we please God? How can we know if we're doing enough in our Christian lives to make Him happy? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prent, and welcome to Bible 805. Fortunately, God does not play games with us and doesn't leave us guessing as to what He wants us to do. We're going to talk about that today in our lesson on the book of Micah, entitled, How Can We Please God? The Eternally Important Question, with a focus on Micah 6.8. If you've been listening to this series, you know we've been talking about the history of the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, how they disobeyed God, and how God had to take Israel out of the land Basically, they were destroyed as a nation for their disobedience. Now, even after that happened, Judah continued as a nation for about 150 years. But now think about it. When I first started doing this lesson, I thought, you know, it would be kind of like living in the United States. Can you imagine if all of Canada or, say, all of Mexico was completely destroyed, all of the people taken away, people from other nations brought in, and just this complete devastation happening. That would be really significant, watching that happen. But I realized, living in California, that it would have been even closer than that because when you take the nation of Israel and you superimpose it over a map of California, it only covers about five counties. And I live on the coast in Ventura, and if you go north of us from uh, Santa Barbara, Barber County, San Luis Obispo, and Monterey County, just up that area. That would be about the size of Israel. And then Ventura County, where I live, and L.A. County, that would be about the size of Judah. And something that close, that personal, you would think that it would just have a huge impact on people's lives. That seeing what happened when someone else disobeyed, that it would really make you want to shape up and, and live correctly. But as we know, no, it didn't quite go like that. But even though they were heading towards a similar fate, God didn't give up on them. He kept sending them prophets. He kept sending people to them, encouraging them to change. We studied the book of Hosea a few lessons ago. His preaching ended. Then Isaiah, the prophet that many people have heard about, he started preaching. But at about the same time, a man named Micah started preaching. Now, we don't know a whole lot about his background. He lived in Judah, but his messages were both to Israel and to Judah. And in the next lesson, we're actually going to have a little bit more of a historical background. But what I really wanted to do today is I wanted to drill down and focus on application a lot more, specifically the verse in Micah that many of you are familiar with, where it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Studying history is useful, and I hope that you've learned a number of things about it, and we're going to talk about that in continuing lessons, because one of the things that, one of the reasons why I talk about history so much is I want you to understand that these aren't just fanciful, spiritualized stories. These things happen to real people in real history, but once again, just knowing the history doesn't always help us change our lives in the way that God wants us to. 
what we're going to do is look a little bit more on the background of MICA and then we will go into MICA 6.8 once you understand the context of it and we will go through every single part of that verse, what the words mean. We'll talk about additional verses that are related to key terms and the whole idea is to help us be doers of the word. We don't want to deceive ourselves and also I want this to really help us in our current situation. Oftentimes online I see things where they talk about, well, how does God really want us to act towards poor people or towards aliens or towards those less fortunate? And I always get very frustrated when I see those things because the Bible tells us very, very clearly how we're supposed to act with compassion and love and gentleness and kindness and with justice. And we're going to drill down again, as I said, and talk about what these terms mean. But let's first look at a little bit of the overall context of Micah. Very similar to the prophets of the time, he talked about judgment was coming to those who were sinning. And in Micah 2, 1, it says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. What a contemporary verse. People do evil because they can, but just because they can does not mean that they're going to get away with it. God is in control. He is watching it. He wants them to repent. But if they don't, judgment will be coming. And so we we want to be very aware of that. It was also a very religious time, but it was an odd time with the religions. In Micah 2 goes on to say, Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, don't tell us about judgment that's coming because of sin. Don't do that. And Micah goes on to say, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for these people. People want to hear good things. They don't want to hear that God will judge them for their sins. We don't even want to hear it when somebody corrects us or maybe during church we get a twinge of our conscience or whatever. But what you don't want to hear is oftentimes what you most need to hear. And none of this slowed the prophet Micah down at all. In Micah, not only does he talk about judgment, but the book has some really wonderful emphasis on the coming Messiah. The prophecy of Bethlehem and of the coming rule of our King Jesus forever. He talks about these in the book of Micah. Let me read this one passage to you in Micah 5, 2, 4, and 5, where it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are among the, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And of course, this is the passage, if you remember, when the wise men came to to uh, King Herod at Christmas and said, you know, we've seen the star of the king. Where is he so that we can worship him? Herod's 
looked to the priest and they knew immediately we're talking about and they said the king that promised messiah will be born in bethlehem and sadly that is why herod knew to go there and kill all of the babies that were under two years old now we know too of course that god warned joseph and he fled to egypt with baby jesus but this comes the prophecy comes from the book of micah but he doesn't stop with the messiah's birth he looks ahead to the the days of the king's future rule where it says he will teach us in his ways that we may walk in his paths he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the lord almighty has spoken all the nations may walk in the name of their gods but we will walk in the name of the lord our god forever and ever he gave the people hope even in the midst of judgment. Now, one little note here that I think is important to remember when you're studying the prophets. They knew for sure what would happen. They just didn't know when. And it's like that for us today. We know the Lord is coming back. We know he will set up his eternal kingdom. We just don't know when it is. But of course, the challenge to all of us is to be ready at any time. Well, having preached this strongly, then the people respond to my by saying with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God shall I bring before him burnt offerings with calves a year old they were doing all this stuff they were having religious festivals and doing offerings and doing all of that and they're kind of saying isn't this enough and then they go on and they say will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams with 10,000 rivers of olive oil shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul And sadly, you need to know the historical context there. They're referring to the pagan sacrifice where they literally burnt their children alive to the pagan gods. But of course, Micah answers, no, no, no. And he just says, here's God's answer. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? In essence, he's saying it isn't sacrificing your children. It isn't all kinds of offerings and killed calves and olive oil and and all this sort of thing. But he says, here's what he wants. For you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We so often would like God to tell us, oh, give me this big thing to do, and then let me just live my life the way I want to live it. God says, no, I want your obedience in the little things in life. Remember in Luke 16.10 that Jesus said, if you're faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And in Matthew 25, remember, not everybody hears the words, well done. I am, this is really upsetting to me where a lot of people think, oh, you can live your life as a Christian however you want to, and you get welcomed into heaven and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, a lot of people today aren't really living the life that will deserve a well done. 
God only says that to the people that took the spiritual gifts that they had and used them for the sake of the kingdom. And so we're supposed to live in a way that God wants us to. Now, that doesn't mean everybody has to do big, great, important, phenomenal things. Remember, in the parable of the talents, a ten-talent person, a lot was required from that person. A person that just had five talents, much less was required of them. Everyone can do something for Jesus. Whether you might be completely handicapped, you might be homebound, you might be ill, you might have all kinds of limitations. But if your mind is working at all, you can pray and praying for people, for ministries, for your church, for those around you is extraordinarily powerful. You can live justly, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God in your family. Think of how many families would be absolutely transformed if the members of the family made as a priority to simply be kind to each other. But let's go on and talk about this a little bit more. God is not just impressed with big things. Another thing in Matthew 7.21 that I think is a, a good passage to keep in mind also, where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. When you know someone... When you love someone, you know what they want. And I know in my relationship with my husband, he loves a home-cooked meal. He loves that far more than if I took him out to some really fancy place and gave him the biggest steak in the world. And all, Well, he'd probably actually kind of like that a little bit. But, but seriously, um, some big fancy thing, but if I was yelling and grumpy and all that kind of stuff... That doesn't mean nearly as much to him as a meal that's really lovingly prepared. And you see, I know that because I know what he wants. God says, I'm not impressed with the big things. I want you to live your life a certain way. And I've told you clearly what that is. So we're going to really, really look at these things. I remember when I was... um, involved in college ministry with the navigators, they emphasize so much discipline in small areas. I was sharing this with my Sunday school class today, where I talked about how with the navigators, and part of the reason I think it was very biblical, but also I know it had something to do with it, that many of the early founders of the navigators were Marines, so it kind of discipline kind of came came with the whole package. But anyway, one thing that they always said was, when you use a restroom, a public restroom, be sure you always clean up the sink afterwards. You know, a lot of people wash their hands and they just slop water and soap all over and just leave. They said, never, never do that. You know, take that, you know, 10 seconds to uh, take your towel and just wipe things down and leave it nice and clean. And my whole life, I've always done that. And it's just kind of a little, um, sort of a little random act of very, very kind, very tiny act of kindness, maybe to the person that comes after me. But I've, I've always thought, it's always been a reminder to me to, to pay attention to the little things in life to try to be pleasing to the Lord. 
a lot of the things that we're going to talk about are we, we react in certain ways on the basis of habit. Habits can be changed. They're never easy, but we can do them. Now, keep in mind, though, that as we talk about this, good behavior is not the way to salvation. But God's people should show that they belong to him. I, you know, we don't talk about this a whole lot anymore, and we probably should, but sometimes when someone is really behaving badly, we will make the comment, well, they were not raised right, or you are certainly not a credit to your family. On the other hand, if a child is really acting well, we say, Boy, you know, you were raised with the right values. We want to show people that we are part of the family of God, that we act with justice and kindness, humility and mercy. These are the things that reflect our Heavenly Father. So let's look at this verse that we've been talking about and let's break it down in detail. First of all, the term to act justly. The term justly is, or excuse me, before we get to justly, just the term, the Hebrew word act is asach. And it means to do, fashion, to accomplish, to make, to produce something. And then justice, justly is the word mishpat. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the whole idea is that on acting justly, it's something that we do intentionally. It's an action that we take. It's aligning ourselves with the character of God. And the idea, this word mishpat, it's it's kind of a unique word that in the Hebrew used, to, and we translate it as justice. It's not tasak, tadak. I can't say these right. But anyway, there's a different word in the Hebrew that is often translated justice. And that means doing things in the right way. But mishpat, it has to do with a much broader scope. In Leviticus 18.4, it says, ye shall do my my judgments, my mishpat, and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, with which, if a man will do, he will live in them. I am the Lord. And it's the idea that this justice is all-encompassing of life. It's And it's for everyone. It's not just the rich and powerful. And remember, we've talked about this in other lessons, but in ancient Israel, they were so unique because justice was the same for everyone. In all the other cultures, if you were very wealthy, you were treated one way. If you were poor, you were treated another way. If you were middle class, another way. If you were a slave, basically, you had no rights whatsoever. But it wasn't like that. In the Hebrew society, everyone was the same before the law. That's God's idea of justice. And then a number of years ago, there was an excellent article in Christianity Today defining biblical justice. And I'm going to read you a little bit out of it because this is very, very good. It says, Biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the cosmos whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. 
It stands at the center of true religion, according to James, who said the kind of religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In the scriptures also, remember in Proverbs 29, 7, it says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Justice flows from God's heart and character as true and good. God seeks to make the object of his holy love whole. That's all of us. It's our world. That's my little parentheses here. God throughout the Old and New Testaments in his judgments on sin and injustice. The judgments are both individual and corporate in scope, but their whole emphasis, their whole reason is to make us whole. The article then goes on, one of the clearest and most holistic words for justice in the Hebrew is shalom, which means both justice and peace. Shalom includes wholeness, or everything that makes for people's well-being, security, and in particular, the restoration of relationships that have been broken. Justice, therefore, is about repairing broken relationships, both with other people and to structures, of courts and punishment, money and economics, land and resources, kings and rulers. So you see, this whole idea of biblical justice is very different than what we often think about. Often we think about justice just as um, punishment, or boy, justice was done when they got what they deserved. God's idea of justice is so much more restorative, and that's what we as believers should always work towards. The verse goes on, we're to love mercy, and the term love there is the Hebrew word that means human love. Um, it's love between a man and a woman. It's an intense, passionate love. And then mercy, to shed, is goodness. or It's often translated kindness. Um, in Proverbs, it talks about what is desired in, man, in a man is kindness. Now, where is this same term of love used? Well, in Genesis 29-20, it says, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they only seemed like a few days to him because of his love for her. In Deuteronomy 7, 8, it says, But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the king of Egypt. So how are we to express this same kind of love, of mercy and kindness? Well, we're supposed to love mercy and kindness with the same intensity that Jacob loved Rachel and served seven years for her, with the same passion that the Lord loves his people and redeemed them. You see, this kind of loving mercy goes way beyond just tolerating the sins and irritations of others. We can say we're being merciful when we just don't scream at them because they do something that irritates us. We need to go far, far beyond that. Some additional verses on mercy I think are helpful. It's characteristic, this kind of mercy is characteristic of our God. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, it says, Therefore the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy 
with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In Psalm 59:16, it says, I will sing of thy power, yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning, for thou hast been my defense and refuge in time of trouble. And also, too, we are required to express mercy if we want to receive mercy. In James 2.13, it says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Also, it's part of wise living. In Proverbs 3.3, it says, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them on the tablet of my of thine heart. It reminded me a lot these passages of how in Ephesians four fifteen it talks about how we should be characterized as people who speak the truth in love. Yes, we tell the truth, but we do it always in a loving way, without God's mercy, without his love, without his kindness to us, his power and his demands would be unbearably harsh. But you see, God deals with us in very merciful ways, even though we constantly fail and disappoint him. And that's how we're supposed to treat others. We don't deny sin. Sometimes we have to confront it. Sometimes we have to say to someone, this has greatly upset me. But we can do it in a way that expresses mercy and kindness. And that's what we want to do. The verse goes on. It talks about walking humbly. And first, just that idea of walking. Um, It means to proceed, to move. It means a manner of life. And then humbly means humbly. (laughs) Um, It's showing humility, showing modesty. Now, just a few words on the idea of walking. The idea of walking shows us that it is a way of life. It's the direction we're going in. Some examples of where it's used in the Bible. Here's some negative ones. In Psalm 78.10, it says, They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his laws. In Psalm 89.30, it says, If if my children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commands, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. You see, God expects us to walk, to continuously live with him in mind. Now, there's also some absolutely wonderful examples of walking with God. In Genesis 5.22, it says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years, and he begat other sons and daughters. And then, of course, it goes on to say that one day when he was walking with God, God just took him. How incredible that is. It reminds me of uh, what um, I think it was John Ortberg said about Dallas Willard when he passed away. He said, you know, Dallas had such a great walk with God, such a close walk with God, that when he died, he said he probably didn't even notice. What an extraordinary testimony, and I think a, a prayer for all of us. But going on back again on examples in the Bible, in Genesis 6-9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. 
in Genesis 17.1. And this is great for all of us that are no longer teenagers, that it's never too late, where it says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Lord Almighty. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And of course, perfect in the Bible doesn't mean without sin. It means be complete. So throughout all of our lives, we have this challenge to walk with God. And we should walk humbly. Now, what does that mean? What does humility mean? It's often misunderstood, and I love to help us understand it, what C.S. Lewis says about it. He, um, When he explains humility, he contrasts it with pride. And here, let me just read a little section that he, he says. He says, the vice that I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. The virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now, we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is essentially competitive. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid that means they are worshiping an imaginary God. And in another place he says, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And this is, again, so good. It reminds me, too, of that song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In our Christian lives, it's not so much about focusing on ourselves. Yes, we want to examine ourselves. We want to see if our walk is all it should be. But we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's who we want to imitate. That's who we want to be like. That's who we want to model our lives after. As we do justly, we love mercy, and we walk humbly with our God. You see, active godliness is a distinctive of the Christian faith. One of the more new age teachers, Deepak Chopra, and there are many who who have influenced him and believe like him, he made this statement where he said, saintliness becomes realistic by seeing it as a state of higher consciousness. Oh, baloney. That is just absolutely not true. Godliness, saintliness, becomes realistic by acting the way that God wants us to. It isn't just this internal state of mind. It has to become real and tangible in our lives for it to be meaningful to the Lord. And just to emphasize again, we need to not only understand the words, but to live them. To act justly means to act in line with all of God's law for all people. To love mercy as intensely as romantic love, we should care about being kind to others. To walk humbly, it's a way of life. 
understanding who God is and walking in a worthy response to it. God wants us to live the lessons that we've talked about. Now, knowing the history of the prophets and Israel, I, I trust that that's instructive and informative, and we will have more lessons on that. But far more important than the history itself, as much as I love history, is to get behind the stories to show us what is important to our Lord. Micah 6 8 is such a good summary of it to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. This week, I'd like to challenge you to take time to pray, to journal, to think about how you can put those commands into practice right where you are, with your family, with the people that you're closest to, and if God puts a burden on your heart, how you might express it in our larger world. Because that is what will help you live a life that's pleasing to God. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format, along with a number of other materials on the www.bible805.com website. Please do subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or the many other podcast channels that you can, so you don't miss out on any of this series of the prophets as we go through the Bible chronologically. There's some, I, I trust, really interesting lessons coming up particularly as we get to the later prophets. I, there's some of my, my favorite books in the Bible, and I, I hope to share with you and, and I hope to get you excited, as excited about them as I am. So stick with it, subscribe to the podcast, and until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.